James chapter 1, if you would uh, turn in your Bibles this morning. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, you'll have to uh, bear with me this morning and possibly uh, next week. Um, We're going to shortly begin a series in the book of Matthew, uh, but I need a little more time uh, to wrap my mind around uh, the book of Matthew. Uh, It's 28 chapters, uh, and 28, it's not like Acts where it was a lot of stories, but 28 packed chapters of, uh, of a lot of things, so I'm trying to get my mind around it before we, before we get started, and then this past week had the opportunity to go on Friday night and Saturday uh, with a group on our college and career over to uh, Lansing to hear uh, a speaker on um, a lot of the issues of uh, gender and sexuality uh, this past uh, weekend, so kind of shortened my opportunity to get my mind around Matthew as well then, so, um, so we're not going to dive into Matthew, but I am going to give you a homework assignment, all right? So how many of you have had homework in the last decade or five decades or can't remember the last time? All right, so, um, so one of the things we're going to consider when we look at Matthew is it's really written, it's going to sound very basic, but, it, but it's, I think we, sometimes we get away from this. The book of Matthew is, is, was intended to, to, to read as a, as a story and be, be one whole book. I think sometimes when we approach it, it's chapter by chapter, or we read a little bit here from this portion of the Bible, a little bit here from Matthew and those chapters. But the homework assignment is to try to sit down and read the book of Matthew in one sitting or in just a few sittings, settings and, 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 and read it uh, as, a, as, a, as a story, as if the early church would have heard it uh, as in, in that way, without so much the chapter divisions and... Um, and verse divisions, but try to read it as a story. So how many of you think you can accomplish that in the next two weeks? Okay, like five. All right, so okay, all right, the hands start to go up a little, a little more. So, all right, so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the passage uh, that we are currently praying through as a church family. So last Sunday night, uh, the teen girls, and then in one setting, and then the, the men uh, together prayed through this passage of James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And then tonight uh, at 6 o'clock, the ladies will pray and talk through this same passage. And uh, so we'll consider it uh, this morning and sort of uh, unpack it and draw out its uh, implications for our lives. So let's uh, read um, the first 18 verses of James 1. And then we're going to zoom in this morning on verses 14, uh, really 13 through 15. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is, double, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it, is, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray together. Father, help us as we unpack this passage before us and seek to make appropriate application to our lives, to understand what we read and to see the significance for our Christian walk. And may you impress upon this, uh, on our hearts the, the significance of this passage. Uh, so that we become better equipped to walk in obedience before you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as an elementary schoolboy, uh, one of the uh, favorite games that we played was Capture the Flag. Uh, my friend Charlie in particular, every year he had a birthday party and we would come decked in our camouflage. And we had one sort of face paint stick that we passed around among us and we would paint our face so we would blend in among the, the woods and then we would go out into the woods and into the Connecticut poison ivy and we would, uh, we would play capture the flag for hours. I don't know if kids still do this or if they just play video games um, and pretend like they do it, um, but uh, that's, uh, that's what we used to do when I, was, when I was growing up. And if you grew up praying, playing capture the flag, then you'll remember that there was, each team had a side that they defended, and in the middle was this no-man's land, or a, a kind of a, a free space where you could, you, could, you, could, you could run in between without fear of getting tagged or going to prison. And so that's how we would play this, this game, Capture the Flag. Now this morning, I'll tie this in back in a second, but this morning we're considering our duty as believers to fight temptation. And we're discussing, as I said, and praying about it in our, in our prayer groups. And, and one of my concerns, even as we, we prayed through this last week as a group of men, is that we don't take our fight against temptation as seriously as we should. Well, how do I know this? Well, I know this because I rub shoulders with other believers regularly, and it's obvious there, but more so, I know the condition of my own heart and how easy it is to just sort of stop fighting 
and to kick it into autopilot and to not say, take seriously the effect that sin and temptation can have on us. And I don't think we're especially interested in living a, a, a loose life when it comes to sin, but I think we're, we've sort of grown content in, in, in not fighting, and especially in those small areas of life, because we think, well, these small areas of, of sin don't really affect anyone, and they don't affect us too drastically, and, and, and everyone seems to have these, so what's the big deal? And I'm concerned that, that we allow the seemingly insignificant sins into our life, but, but I think what we realize, and we'll see from this passage, is that they have the potential to grow into much bigger things and destroy our life altogether. It was the great Puritan preacher John Owen who who wrote this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. In other words, there is no no man's land when it comes to sin. We are either in a position where we're making progress against sin or sin is making progress against us, but there's no place of neutrality where we can sort of kick back an autopilot and not worry about the temptations that we face and to be particularly guarded against them. Now, when we talk about temptation in our battle against temptation, I think we can be inclined to think about particularly our temptation towards sexual sin because that's the sin that's, that's prevalent in our day. But the reality is that temptation shows up in our lives in, in countless ways. Many of those ways have nothing to do with the temptation towards sexual sin there are, there are temptations toward the fear of man where we, we want to be, be fit in and we, we want to be accepted. There's issues of self-control when it comes to, to food and, and alcohol or anger. And, and there's all of these temptations that we face that have nothing to do with, with our, our sexual desires. So this morning I want us to think more broadly about the role of temptation in our life. And as we think more broadly, I also want us to think specifically too to the temptations that we face on a daily basis. So, how, how are you doing? How are you doing in your fight against temptation? And rather than just asking a, 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 a sort of a fill-in-the-blank kind of answer, I'll give us the four categories that we like to reference often. Are you sailing? Are you rowing? Are you drifting? Or are you sinking? So think about your wrestling with temptation and, and where do you fit in those particular categories. And my prayer is that this reminder from this passage will just be an encouragement to us to, to continue to fight the necessary fight so that we can walk in obedience. Now before diving into this passage, we need to understand where it falls in the larger context of chapter 1. James, in the first 12 verses, has been talking about trials. And he gives this familiar verse in verse 2, which we all sort of are, are uncomfortable with to some degree. He says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And what he's not saying is he's not fa- saying that facing trials is a joyous occasion, but the le- believer can rejoice because he knows that, that God is testing his faith and bringing him to maturity in Christ. That's God's desire for every believer, that we would grow up into maturity. And trials is one of the means that God uses to to grow us up into maturity. But the passage continues in verses 5 to 8. James transitions in verses 5 to 8 to talk about the need for wisdom when we face trials. That is, if if believers are, are having a hard time considering 
their trials a joy, then what they need is the wisdom to see their trials from an eternal perspective. If anyone lacks wisdom, he says, which is really all of us, then we are to go to God who is the source of all wisdom and gives it to us generously so that we can see clearly why God has allowed these trials in our lives. From there, James moves into verses 9 to 11 to talk about the humble brother boasting in his exaltation and the rich brother boasting in his humiliation. And it would seem at verses 9 through 11 that James is taking a turn away from talking about trials, but that's not the case at all. Really what he's talking about here, he's addressing the particular trial that these believers were facing, namely their, their poverty and mistreatment on the part of the rich. In fact, if you go later into the book, you can see that this was the issue that these believers were, were facing. And so he's still talking about trials because this is their trial of facing uh, oppression on, at the hands of, of, of those who are rich. And so, so God is reminding them that the rich person who oppresses them, they will be brought low, and that those who are trusting in Christ, they will be brought high. And then you come to verse 12, which serves as a hinge as this passage turns from trials to the topic of temptation. So notice what he does here. He says, he says blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, verse 12, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. And then he moves into the topic of temptation in the very next words. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now, as we look at this, we might ask the question, how is it and why is it that James moves so seamlessly from the topic of trials to the topic of temptation? And how does he, how does he do this and why does he do this? Okay, well, I think if we, we need to understand a few things about this passage in, in order to understand why he does this. First of all, the, the word trial and the word temptation are really the same word in the Greek language. Unlike English, where we have a word for trial and we have a word for temptation, and they're not very related, in this case, it's the same word. That's why if you're holding a King James Version, you'll see that the word temptation is used throughout in verse 2, verse 12, and verse 13. So in order to decipher whether it's a trial, which would be an external pressure, or a temptation, which would be an inward solicitation to sin, one has to consider the context to know how the word is being used. The second thing we need to understand about why James moves so seamlessly from trials to temptation is because in the midst of their trials, these believers were, were likely tempted to think that since God is the one who causes the trial, that maybe he's also the one who solicits us to sin. See, James is telling him, listen, it's, it's God who brings these trials into your life to produce steadfastness and maturity. But some were thinking, well, if God brought this trial in my life and I'm not responding well and it's causing me to sin, then God is ultimately the one who is causing me to sin in this case. And so James writes to clarify the source of our temptation. Now let me note one more thing about this context, particularly verses 13 to 18. James is writing to protect the absolute goodness of God. Okay, we tend to think about this passage as a passage about temptation, but no, James is, is writing to protect the absolute goodness of God. So notice what he does in verses 13 to 18. In verse 13, he protects the goodness of God by saying, let no one, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
Okay, so he's reminding us of, of God's goodness. Then he takes this rabbit trail in verse 14 when he says that, he, he just takes a rabbit trail and says, well, this is where temptation does come from. But then he goes back to protect the goodness of God in verse 16 when he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. For every good gift and every perfect gift is from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. And, and of his own will he brought us forth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So this passage is, is, is James' attempt to protect the goodness of God. Now what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to look at the rabbit trail. Okay, the rabbit trail of verses, really verses 13 to 15, but the rabbit trail is more 14 to 15. But we're going to look at that on the, on the, the source of our temptations. I want to consider two points this morning. The source of temptation is not God. And secondly, the source of temptation is our own sinful desires. So let's begin with that first point. The source of temptation is not God. So this is how verse 13 begins. It's a third-person imperative. So this is a command. Let no one say. When he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. This is not a suggestion or a mere recommendation, but it's, it's a command. We're commanded that when in the face of temptation, we are not allowed to blame God for our temptations. Now, it's easy, as I said, to see how believers had concluded this, because if God was sovereign over their trials, then they would think, well, he must be the one who's then causing me to sin. Well, allow me to, to clarify for a minute about God's relationship to, to trials and, and sin and, and suffering and, and, and his sovereignty. Okay, God is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign even over the sinful actions of man. That might sound contrary to what we think, but I think it's clear in Scripture. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So here's the evil actions of, of Joseph's brothers against him, and God doesn't, God doesn't, or Joseph doesn't say that their actions weren't actually evil. He doesn't say that they were, he says that, he doesn't say they were actually good. He says they were evil and their, in, their intent was evil, but God was sovereign over their actions to intend those things for good purposes. We have a similar phrase in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where, where the apostle Peter is preaching about, about the death of Christ and confronting the Jews, and he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So in the crucifixion of Christ, God was not hindered at all by the sinfulness of man. Rather, he, he was sovereign over it to use it to accomplish his purposes. But we need to make a, a very important distinction. Okay, while God is sovereign even over the sinful actions of creatures, he's not responsible for their sin. Okay, it says it's in this passage in Acts chapter 22, it's a statement about God's sovereignty, right? It was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that crucified Christ, but it was combined with the moral blame being placed on those who carried out the actions. It was done, it was crucified by the hands of lawless men. 
So this is true throughout Scripture. While God is sovereign over all things, he's never seen as the, as the one who is, who, is, who is leading his creation to sin. In fact, James says just the opposite. We're not allowed to make such accusations against God. Now, why do I take the time to remind us of God's sovereignty over man's sinful actions this morning? Well, it's for this reason, that if God is not sovereign over the actions of sinful humanity, then that means there are things happening that are outside of God's sovereign control. That God's sort of responding and reacting to sinful things that are, that are taking place, and in no way could he guarantee the promise of Romans 8.28. That all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But since he is sovereign over all things, then we can trust in his sovereignty to bring about his intended end and plan in all things. Now let's go back here to James chapter 1, where we see that no one is allowed to say that God is the source of temptation. I think it's in man's basic nature to always want to blame someone or something else for their sin and temptation, right? This was true in the garden with Adam and Eve. God says to Adam, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What was Adam's response? The woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So God, this is really not my fault. After all, I was sleeping in the garden I wake up, I'm missing a rib, and I'm married, all right? And so this is not my fault, God, it's, 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 it's your fault, okay? So don't, don't blame me. And Eve's response is, is no better, right? The Lord turns to Eve, and she says, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. In other words, it wasn't my response, or it wasn't my, it wasn't my fault, I, was, I wasn't responsible for my sin. And so since the very first sin of mankind, there has been this attempt to blame someone or something else. And I remember back to my high school days, not, not excelling in chemistry, and many other subjects as well, but particularly chemistry, uh, was, uh, was, was tough. And I remember trying to survive chemistry just so I could play basketball. And when I would, in those occasions, fail a chemistry test, I couldn't blame my teacher, and I couldn't blame the test, right? It was my fault for virtually having done no work in preparation for it and not really listening in class. And so it was, it was my fault. Now, we might say it this way, that the, the test or the exam was the occasion for my failure, but it was not the cause of my failure. And we might say the same about our circumstances. While they may be the occasion for our sin, they are not the cause for our sin. So we might not be in the business of blaming God directly, but we do blame him indirectly when we blame our circumstances for our sin. So we, you know, someone might say, well, I know I'm a bad father, but I didn't have a good father growing up, and so that's just the, how I learn things, and that's the way I, I parent. Or we might say, well, I would love to you know, live in unity with this person, but quite frankly, um, they're such a jerk, there's no way that I could, could love them, all right? You, you blame the, the circumstances. Or I would love to obey my parents if I had a different set of parents, okay? We're not allowed to blame our circumstances 
Because in blaming our circumstances, we're ultimately blaming God. But notice that there's two reasons in verse 13 why we cannot blame God for our temptations. Number one, because of the character of God, he cannot be tempted with evil. And number two, because of the activity of God, he himself tempts no one. Okay, so the character of God, God cannot be tempted by evil. That there's, there's nothing in the character of God that makes him susceptible to sin. Habakkuk 1.13 describes it this way, that the Lord is, is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So, so, so God cannot be tempted in this way. You say, well, what about when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? Well, I think that's, that's helpful to understand that distinction between tests and temptation and the same word being used here, because God can be tested, but there is no evil inclination in, him, in his heart to, to, to draw out or solicit him to sin. He doesn't have the same evil desires or sin nature that we do. So while he was, he was tested and tempted in that sense, our temptations are uh, different in that sense than, than God's, because we are tempted from our own desires. The, the activity of God, secondly, does not allow God, us to blame God for, for tempting us. He says God does not tempt anyone. In other words, there's nothing in God that brings him pleasure in seeing his creation and his children sin. So there's no evil in God that would give him pleasure in tempting us. And so James says, this is not the source of temptation. Your circumstances are not the source. God is not your source. So the source of temptation must lie somewhere else. That's where we see, secondly, that the source of temptation is our own evil desires. Right? Look back at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So we see that the source of temptation is found within man, not outside of him. Now, before we walk into this idea of desires and this idea of being lured and enticed, back up to this phrase at the beginning of verse 14 when it says this. Each person is tempted. Now, that's an important phrase. And I think what James is doing there is he is stressing the universality of temptation. He doesn't say, now, if you happen to be tempted, and he doesn't say if you're one of those especially weak Christians who are susceptible to temptation, then you might want to know this. No, he says it different than that. He says, each person is tempted. In other words, temptation is a normal part of the Christian life. Now, as crazy as that sounds, this is good news for us. Okay? This is good news for us, and it brings a level of, of comfort. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says it this way. You remember these words? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That is, the temptations that, that you face and the temptations that I face, they are not new. They have been and will be experienced by others, So we can eliminate this thinking from our minds that we're the only ones that face this kind of temptation or this particular temptation. 
And Satan wants us to believe that we're the only ones. So that we sort of seclude ourselves and, and never open up and, and try to do the Christian life all on our own. And Satan wants us to believe that if we tell someone that they're going to they're gonna look at us and they're going to say, I can't believe you would ever think about committing such a sin. Because he wants us to believe that, that, that we're the only ones who are tempted like this. But that's not what Paul says. He says, temptations that you face are common to man. Do you know what common to man is? It's like the difference between McDonald's and Chick-fil-A. Okay? When you drive down the road and you see McDonald's, you barely even notice it because you're like, oh yeah, that, that's common, right? We've all, been to, we've all been to McDonald's, in fact. We can get to, to several in, in, our, in our town with just a, a few-minute drive. They're, they're just common. I mean, your two-year-old in the backseat, he might get excited about seeing McDonald's, but you don't get excited about seeing McDonald's because they're common. But Chick-fil-A, all right, boy, there's so few in Michigan, right? So when you do see one, you have to stop, all right, because they're so uncommon, okay? So this is what common to man means. It's just sort of it's just, just normal, just normal to our lives. So what should this do for us? Well, it should allow us to be open and honest with one another about the struggles we face. It should allow us to, to seek help and not feel like we're going to be judged for opening up about the struggles that exist in our own hearts. And it allows us to be gracious with one another because we are tempted, just like our other brothers and sisters in Christ. I think we would do well to remember this as parents. As parents, when our children are tempted in sin in particular ways, it can be easy to sort of come down on them hard as if we've never faced the, these kinds of temptations. Now, sometimes we have to be firm and we have to exercise discipline, but we can't act like we're the first, that, that they're the first ones to have ever experienced this. Because the reality is, as much as our kids are like us, they're, they're struggling with the same temptations that we struggled with at their age and still struggle with at, at our age. And so this should produce in us a level of grace with one another when we see others tempted and sinning. So if you struggle in a particular way or struggle in a particular temptation, please understand that you can run to a friend and you can run to a Christian counselor. You can run to a pastor because you're not the only one to face this. In fact, we need to run to one another. As we read in our scripture reading in, in Hebrews uh, chapter um, 3, that we're to, to, to run to one another and encourage one another all the more as in our, in our fight against being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Remember the old saying, lone rangers are dead rangers when it comes to the Christian life. Now let's turn to verse 14 further, where he says this. Everyone is tempted when he is, and he uses these words, lured and enticed by his own desires. So there are these desires that exist in our heart. They are sinful desires that we are wrestling with. And not all of our desires are sinful, but they all have the capacity for sin because of our sinful nature. So even our desire for a good thing can, can be twisted and corrupted by our sin nature and it turns into a desire for a bad thing. So the desire for food is not a bad desire, but it has the capacity for gluttony. And the desire for a sexual relationship is not wrong, 
but it has the capacity to be used outside of the bounds of what God has allowed. Okay? So there's always this war going on in our heart of, of desires. And Peter words it this way in 1 Peter 2.11, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from, and he says sinful desires here, but I think in Greek it's just the word desires, to abstain from desires which war against your soul. So this war is going on in all of our hearts between the, the flesh and the spirit over these desires and how we're going to, be, how we're going to handle those things. And James says that we are lured and enticed by our own desires, by the desires that are, that are taking place in our heart. And th- this is a, a metaphor for fishing, these terms, these terms, lured and enticed. Now, I'm not a fisherman. I'm not really an outdoorsman. I mean, I like to play golf. I'd say I'm not a rugged outdoorsman, okay? But I, it would surprise you to know that I have fished on a couple of occasions, right? So my cousin, he grew up in central Pennsylvania, and uh, we would go to, I'd go to his house, and, and he liked to fish, so I would join him in, in fishing. And uh, one time we fished this particular river, and he set me up in this spot, and I was surrounded by a handful of Amish guys uh, there in central Pennsylvania. They were fishing for their, for their livelihood, and I was just fishing to do something with my cousin. So, so he set me up, and he crossed the river, and he walked further down. And just within a couple minutes, I catch like a 12-inch fish. Every time I tell the story, it gets bigger. I caught a 12-inch fish, and it was a real, a real pleasure. Although the embarrassing thing is, I wasn't going to touch the fish. Uh, so I'm not taking that off my hook. So I had to call my cousin to come all the way back uh, and, and get this fish off the hook for me. And the Amish guy that was there with me, was, he said, that's a, that's a real nice fish. I knew he wasn't lying because he had a beard like Abraham Lincoln. And so I knew he was telling the truth, right? So, so he, he takes the fish off my hook for me, and he goes back across the river. Just a few minutes later, I catch a nine-inch fish. And again, my cousin has to come back and take the, the fish. That was an awesome day of, of fishing. Typically what happens for me is you go out on the boat and I catch like a little like three-inch sunfish. And you take the thing off, you throw it back in, and then that same fish comes right back in and, and bites on your hook. And you, you, you're catching the same fish all day with not much success. And you're thinking this, how could this little fish be so foolish after he's just bit the hook to come around a second time and a third time to, to be lured and enticed like this. But this is, this is what James said is, is, is you and it's me. Okay, we are lured and enticed by our own desires. We know that sin is wrong. We know that if it takes the bait, it will damage our lives. We know that the consequences are more than we can bear. But we convince ourselves that we're different. That we won't experience the consequences like other people have experienced the consequences. The consequences don't apply to us. Or, as is often the case, we're deceived into thinking that this is going to make me happy. Right? And this is, where, this is where lust gets its power, by persuading me that I'll be happier if I give in to the lust. This is the power of all temptation, is the, is the prospect that this will make me happier. And so we're lured and enticed by our own desires. 
there's something I've, I've a thought that I've rehearsed numerous times that I think originated with uh, Sinclair Ferguson. Um, and it's in the questions that we discussed last week and we'll discuss tonight, but it's this statement. He says, the danger zone for any person is where desire intersects with opportunity. So if you have one without the other, you can often survive. But if you have desire meeting opportunity, then you are a dead man walking. Like you can live a life of uncontrolled desires and lust and and sort of scoot by for a while, but then when the opportunity comes, well, that's when the danger zone is for believers. And I don't mean to say that the desire is not sinful. The desire is sinful. But the particular danger zone is when the desire intersects with the opportunity and we easily give in. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, because from it flow the springs of life. And we have to do battle, in essence, against temptation. We have to do battle in two ways, right? We, we have to cut off the opportunity, right? Jesus says it's better to enter heaven with one hand or one eye than it is to enter hell whole. Okay, so there are times in our lives where we have to do radical amputation or take drastic measures in order to protect us from the temptation to sin. But I think you and I will acknowledge we can't always control the circumstances that we find ourselves in and, and, and be removed from, from temptation. We have to also be doing the work on our own heart to guard our heart from the, from the, from the, from the sinful desires that we face so that when those opportunities do present themselves and we do intersect with the opportunities, that we're not giving in to those things. So we have to be doing battle on both fronts, protecting ourselves against the opportunity as well as doing the work in our own heart. And like I said before, this is not just a, a, not just a sexual thing, but it's, also, it's, it's all kinds of temptations. Right? So when I'm tempted to be angry, what desires are ruling my heart? What unmet wants or needs are, are ruling my heart in that, in that time? When I can't control my appetite, what desires are ruling my heart in those moments? When I'm spending out of control, what desires are ruling my heart? When I'm constantly giving in to peer pressure, what desires are ruling my heart? So the sinful temptation comes when we're, when we're lured and enticed by the desires of our heart. Now, let's turn our attention to verse 15, where James switches metaphors from fishing to the idea of conception of life. And here, notice verse 15, he says this, And desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What James is doing here is he moves from how we are tempted, in verse 14, to talking about what happens when we give in to temptation, right? So verse 14, we're tempted, we're lured and enticed by our own desires. Now here's what happens when we give in to temptation. Verse 15, okay? James says, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. It's not necessarily wrong to have desires or even to be tempted, but when those desires don't align with God's word, then it gives birth to sin, And one of the things our passage emphasizes, and I think helpfully so, is the the lengthy amount of time 
that can go from conception and, and, and sin to ultimate destruction. And he compares it to the life of a human being. From conception to birth, from birth to full growth, from full growth to death. And that's a helpful reminder because I think when our fight against sin, we think, well, this, we, 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 we don't think as, as, as long-term as this. We think, well, this is, it's not hurting anybody. Nobody else knows about it. It's pretty much just secluded to me. But if you remember the old expression, you sow a thought, you reap an action. You sow an action and you reap a habit. You sow a habit and you reap a character. You sow a character and you reap a destiny. So that's the danger. We, we think so short-term and how it's affecting us immediately, but we don't realize that the, that the patterns that we're setting now are going to impact us and possibly enslave us for the years to come. So we think it's a simple lie or a second glance or an angry thought that won't affect anybody or harm anybody, but when the process of life carries along, it has the opportunity to destroy us. I like what Paul Tripp says one time when he says that our lives are not defined by the few big decisions we make, but by the thousands and thousands of little choices we make. Right? We tend to think of our lives as like, well, I made this decision, and I made that decision, I made this decision, and that ultimately set me on the course of where I am. But truly our lives are made up by the, the, the thousands and thousands of little decisions that shape our character that ultimately determine the course of our life. And that's why James here is saying you've got you to be really, really careful to protect your heart, to not be lured and enticed by temptation because it can have such a drastic and devastating effect. Now, we need to hear these truths from verses 13 and 15 because I said in my introduction, I think we have grown and can grow complacent in our lives. Or sometimes we face periods of time where we're fighting well and then periods of time where we're lax. And that's why it's good for us to be exposed to passages like this, to be, to be reminded of the importance of, no, got to keep fighting, got to continue. So in our questions last week, uh, it was asked to the older men in the groups, what wisdom would you pass on to younger men who are battling temptation? And it was reported to me that in one group, one older man was asked, and the question was, does it ever get easier? And the older gentleman said, no. <laughs> you got to keep fighting. you got to keep pressing on. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. All right, so what do we need to do with this passage? Well, what do you need to do with this passage? Are you sailing? Are you rowing? Are you drifting? Or are you sinking? And depending on which category you, you fall in, your response might be different. So I can't give a specific response. Maybe it's you need to just keep pressing on. Or maybe it's 
You need to start including another brother or sister in Christ in your life. Or maybe it's you've got to run for help because you're on the verge of destruction. And I don't know where you are in, in, in this process, but I remind us all that, that it's this, our, our battle against sin is too important to wait till tomorrow or to neglect the responsibilities that we have. We need to do battle and take, make the necessary efforts today. So be killing sin or it will be killing you. Let's pray together. Father, remind us with these truths this morning and encourage our hearts with them that we're not the only ones who wrestle with sin and temptation, but you've given us the body of Christ, you've given us the word, you've given us the work of the Spirit, and all these means to pursue sanctification. So so help us, Lord, to, to fight as we need to so that we can walk in a way that pleases you, so that our generations after us uh, can learn from us and see our godly example and follow you also. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.